So, which one of these is not like the other? You're probably wondering where in the world we're going with that. Um, today we're going to be covering the passage, Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Um, but I think it's important, go ahead and turn your Bibles to that, but I think it's important for us, before we go into this passage, really to get the backdrop and kind of take a step back into last week where uh, Mark Lederbach was uh, sharing uh, with us from kind of the central passage of Matthew's gospel. In fact, if, if you look up on the screen here, you'll see that um, Mark preached through a text where Jesus had taken the disciples uh, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is interesting um, in that uh, Jesus was a master teacher. Uh, and teachers realize that you know, not all learning um, takes place in a classroom. That oftentimes the classroom is a very sterile environment for learning. And, and really, not all learning is just information. There's, there's transformation that needs to take place as well. And so as a master teacher, Jesus oftentimes took his disciples to places where they could learn lessons in a very potent and powerful way. He gave them a backdrop, a setting, so that their hearts were prepared to answer really difficult questions. And that's the case here with Caesarea Philippi. Um, last week, Mark showed you a, a map of this region, and Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, you know, Jesus, the majority of his ministry up to this point had taken place around the Sea of Galilee uh, in that region, but now he moves northward 25 miles into a region that's primarily populated by uh, pagans, by people who were not Jewish of, the, of, of background. And he takes them here. This is a, a, it's not that this area is not religious. It's just that their religion is starkly different from that which the disciples uh, had been accustomed to living around. So Jesus takes the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, and then he asks them this question. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And so they go around the, the group, and they answer this question for him. And you know, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. They, they give all of these answers. And Jesus is basically asking them the question, you know, look around you. Of the people who know me, who do they say the Son of Man is? And they give him this answer. But then he asks them a very pointed question. It goes from the impersonal, from those around, to the personal, to them directly. And he asks them this question. He says, who do you say that I am? Now, the, the structure of that sentence, the, the verb that's used there, is actually conveying the idea that he didn't just ask this once. He asked this question repeatedly, over and over again. Uh, maybe he was going around the group and asking each and every one of them individually, what, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter, being the spokesperson for the group, kind of lays it out as, as one final thrust. I'm not sure exactly whether that's how it happened, but ultimately he was asking repeatedly this question, who do you say that I am? And that's really, as Mark said last week, the central question of all of Matthew's gospel. Who do you say that I am? And the way that Peter responds and the, the rest of the disciples respond is very interesting. Now, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, in that statement, you have to understand the backdrop of what was going on here. Jesus had taken these disciples out of the classroom into the field, into the laboratory. 
Last week, I just actually arrived home on Friday. I'd taken some of my students. I teach evangelism at Southeastern. And evangelism is something that's very difficult to teach in a classroom setting. You know, I can give principles, I can tell stories and whatnot, but when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, it's very difficult to convey to people in a meaningful way in a classroom setting exactly what that looks like. And so this last week, I took a a bunch of students from Southeastern up to New York City with me, and we joined together with a larger group, and we spent the whole week going out into the streets and sharing the gospel with people of all different backgrounds. Uh, And the the beauty of that was is that these students were able to walk alongside me. They've heard me teach. In fact, a couple of them actually had my evangelism course this past spring. And at the end of the semester, they had heard all about it, but they wanted to see it. So they go on this trip, and we go out into the streets, and we're sharing the gospel with people. And by God's grace, we saw many people come to repentance and faith in Christ. And it wasn't just me. I, I was able to take students along and model for them how to share the gospel But then they began to grow in their confidence and their understanding, and they started sharing. And so virtually every person that went out on our team was able to see at least one person come to repentance and faith. They learned it in the laboratory of life. Now, Jesus had taken his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi intentionally because there was a lesson that they could learn best there. Here's a a picture of what you would find if you go to Caesarea Philippi today. This is a cave, and this cave is actually uh, known by archaeologists as the Gates of Hades. Um, This is in Caesarea Philippi. The city, Caesarea Philippi, in the first century, the name was changed. It had been changed from Peneus, or the place of Pan worship, not Peter Pan, um, but Pan worship. There was this deity. Some of you have heard maybe the, the term pantheism. Um, And so uh, this Greek god, Pan, had been worshipped there. Prior to that, Baal had been worshipped there. If you think back to the Old Testament and these Baal worships. So this is a place of pagan worship. And now, uh, in the first century, when Jesus takes them there, not only do you have Baal and Pan worship, you also have emperor worship that's taking place here. And that's the reason it was called Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar. And so... Jesus takes the disciples and sits them up on a hillside, probably overlooking this very site. And the disciples are watching these people, these worshipers, these pagans, these unbelievers in throngs go in and offer their sacrifices at this place. Here's one of the, uh, a picture of one of the little cult niches. They would go and they would lean outside of these places and they would bow down and prostrate themselves and pray to these gods. Now, As the disciples listen to Jesus teach, they're hearing the question, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they're answering, you know, and they're answering from a Jewish framework, right? Who all the Jews are saying. But they're overlooking probably this setting where all these pagans are going and worshiping false deities. And then Jesus turns the question and gets very personal. Who do you say that I am? In Peter's summative statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's it's very poignant, that statement. It's very powerful, that statement. What Peter was saying is, Jesus, you're not like the others. You're not like Baal. You're not like Pan. You're not like Caesar. You're completely different. You are the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. You are Messiah. You're the great rescuer who has been sent from God. 
And Jesus responds not with uh, an attaboy, Peter. Oftentimes we read it like that. But he, he responds with a very subtle, maybe even veiled warning to Peter. He says, Peter, that's, that's good that you get that. But let me tell you, you didn't come up with that on your own. It was revealed to you by our Father in heaven. So Peter had just written his dissertation, right? And now he finds himself in front of the master teacher. And the master teacher is saying, be careful that you don't get haughty in your orthodox theology. Be careful that you don't think that what you know is the source of your acceptance in in terms of just right thinking. And Jesus teaches him a great lesson. He says, your father revealed this to you. And then he goes on and he says, and Peter, he gives him this name. Last week, Mark talks about that name, right? Peter, he calls him Rocky. Um, and he, he places that name on him and says, Peter, you're, you're a rock. Okay? Now, oftentimes, the, the Catholics have said, well, okay, there's the establishment of the, of the papacy. Um, and, and that, I think, is, is misguided. Um, but a lot of people kind of diminish the second rock. Jesus says, and Peter, you're a rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Well, that second rock, the, the gender of the noun shifts from masculine to feminine, and actually that changes the meaning a little bit. Peter is a rock, singular, but when Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church, what he's saying is, that Peter, you're a rock, and on this quarry of rocks, the quarry of stones, the disciples, they're all rocks. Peter was not the only one who had answered that question for him. On this quarry of stones, I'm going to build my church. If you look at Peter's epistle, you know, he actually talks about living stones. Um, Paul talks about the foundation of the apostles and Jesus being the chief cornerstone. These rocks are going to become the bedrock or the foundation. Their confession and the right teaching about Jesus is going to lay the foundation for the very church. And Jesus says that this church will be established, his church will be established, and the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That cave. They're looking at worshipers going. Now, the reason why this was known as the Gates of Hades is because there was a river. This was actually the the source of the Jordan River. But uh, part of that river, a tributary of that river, dropped off into this cave and went down so far that people couldn't see the bottom. And so it became known as the Gates of Hades. Hades was the abode of the dead, where the disembodied souls of humans lived. And they believed that this went directly into the center of the earth. And so they would worship here. And Jesus says, even even these throngs, the gates of Hades, what what the world fears, what these people are worshiping to try to avoid, that's not going to overcome my church. And so that's the backdrop that stands behind our text uh, that we're coming to today. And when we come to Matthew chapter 16, and we begin in verse... uh, Uh, 21 and go through verse 28, you'll find that this is divided up really into uh, two sections. 
verses 21 through 23 focuses in on the cross of Christ, the cross of Jesus. But then verse 24 through 28 focuses on the cross of the disciples. And so that's the way we're going to look at it. And last week, the central question was, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? This week, the shift is going to be, not only who do you say that he is, but in light of your answer to that question, what are the implications for you as a follower? Who are you? Who are you in light of who Jesus is? So while Jesus' identity is the beginning of discipleship, the narrow road of, of the disciple is characterized by making Jesus the Lord of our life as we learn to follow him and to value Jesus over life itself. In other words, being Jesus' disciple is not merely believing right things about Jesus. That, that's called orthodoxy, ortho, right, doxy, worship, or, or belief. It's not just about believing the right things about Jesus. Being Jesus' disciple also leads us into living the right way by following Jesus. That's orthopraxy, right living. And the two cannot be separated. And what you're going to see today as we transition into this text is that Peter's victory dance was very short-lived. You know, Peter had gotten it right. The disciples had gotten it right. But very quickly, we'll find that Peter goes from the, the, the apex of orthodoxy to heresy. And you're going to see it here in the text. So let's look here together. From that time, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and that he would be killed and on the third day raised again. Now, here what we'll find is Jesus' explanation of what it means for him to be Messiah. And it culminates in the cross. It culminates in his crucifixion. This is the first of four times in Matthew's gospel that you're going to see Jesus actually tell the disciples before he goes to the cross, he tells them, it's coming. You see, Peter in the previous section had just said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God, but he didn't understand what that meant. He didn't understand directionally where that was taking Jesus and then as Jesus' followers, what it would mean for them. And so here we find Jesus explaining it. In fact, if you look with me at a couple of other instances where Matthew highlights Jesus saying this, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, just over a page or two. Matthew 17, verse 20. Jesus says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You say, wait a second, now why did you begin in verse 20? It doesn't seem like that's kind of seamless. In fact, in your Bibles, there may actually be a gap. There may be a section heading change or something that, that falls in there between verse 20 and verse 21. But I think that the two ideas are tied together throughout Matthew's gospel. That here, here's the point, is that the kingdom doesn't come apart from the cross. 
There is no such thing as a crossless kingdom. That's the message that Peter and the other disciples needed to learn. And that's the message that we need to be reminded of today. There is no such thing as a crossless kingdom. Jesus had led the disciples way out of the way. He's on his way to Jerusalem, which is south. But he had led them 25 miles north, way out of the way, to teach them a lesson. And the fact is, is that many of you sitting here today, you're in a place you would have never chosen to go. God has taken the direction of your life somewhere where you wouldn't have chosen. Maybe the circumstances are, are, are not what you would have liked. Maybe there's a health issue. Maybe there's a financial issue. Maybe there's a relationship issue. Something where God has taken you a place. But understand this, that when, when God in His kindness and His mercy is revealing Himself to you, He takes you where you need to be to set the backdrop so you can see who He is. Your circumstances are God's intentional design to put you where you can best learn who Jesus is as Messiah and what that means for your life. And so now, here in, this, in, in chapter 17, verse 20, you see the beginning of it. He's talking about the faith of a grain of mustard seed, move the mountain from here to there. That's kingdom talk. You know, that's, that's, that's talking about the kingdom. You know, just believe in this, this thing is going to happen. That's kingdom talk. But notice the backdrop of the kingdom talk is cross talk. Jesus says, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men and they're going to kill me. But I'll raise on the third day. The, the cross and the kingdom, you see those two things flow together through Matthew's gospel. Look at chapter 20, verse 16 and following. Turn over to chapter 20. So Jesus says, so the last will be first and the first last. That's kingdom talk, right? That's what things look like in the kingdom of God. The last is first, the first is last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, don't let that uh, fool you now. You know, he had been up in Caesarea Philippi and he's actually going down. He's going south, but Jerusalem was elevated. And when they would go, they used to speak about going up to worship. That's what he's talking about, up in elevation, not directionally. So they were going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. There's, there's Jesus' cross. He's making it very clear there's no crossless kingdom. And then look at verse 20, and you'll see the kingdom aspect. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons... And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. That sounds like my mama. Quite frankly, you know, a lot of us, our moms are our, our biggest fan, right? So mom's coming up, James and John, bless their hearts. Mom's coming up to Jesus and, and saying, hey, listen, you know me. You know I love you. You know my boys love you. They're following you. Um, when you come into your kingdom, when you get to Jerusalem, how about one of them sitting on the right and other one sitting on the left? And that'll just be fantastic. Kingdom talk. But see, she envisioned, and James and John envisioned, and, and the rest of the disciples envisioned Jesus going up to Jerusalem to sit on the throne. 
What they didn't see is that the way to the throne led him through the cross. So you see Jesus' cross and the kingdom there. And then look, following that, verse, chapter 20, verse 22. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> Oftentimes in our orthodoxy, right, we get so ambitious. I can do this. I got this, Jesus. And Jesus responded and said to them, you will drink my cup. There's the disciples' cross. For them to get to the kingdom, they're going to drink the cup. They're going to taste suffering. They're going to taste pain. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, Jesus said, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared by my Father. So here at the very beginning of our text in chapter 16, we see that there's no such thing as a crossless kingdom. They, they understand who Jesus is. They've got it right from an orthodox standpoint. But what the implications are, orthopraxy, is just not working itself out. They're wanting to get to the kingdom without going through the cross. But understand here that it says that Jesus began to show the disciples. It doesn't say that he began to teach them or he, he began to explain to them. It says he began to show them. The way that Jesus was living had a cruciform shape. He was living a kingdom life. When they looked at him, he was putting himself last. Right? He was everything. He embodied his teaching. Everything that they saw about Jesus, his example, was that. He was showing the disciples where he was headed. The crucifixion shouldn't have been something that they didn't recognize as to be coming because he was already living a life of humility, a life of uh, uh, subjection. And he was doing it willingly. So he began to show them. And that showing would lead to the religious experts of his day actually taking his life there in Jerusalem. He, He wouldn't get to the throne without going through the cross first. It was there in Jerusalem that Jesus would suffer, be killed, and on the third day raised. You you see, the cross and the resurrection are the very heart of the gospel. You, You don't get the kingdom without going through the cross. Paul reminds us how important the cross is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is Paul reminding the church at Corinth. He's saying, this is, this is what I brought to you. This is the message that I proclaim to you. And it is of central importance. This is the foundation of the church. This is the message of the apostles that's being pa- passed on. That quarry of stones and the message that's being brought to you. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus was the rescuer foretold from the very beginning in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the people should not have misunderstood. Yes, there was a cross coming, but also there was glory. All of the Scriptures pointed towards this event that the Messiah, God's rescuer, would humble himself. He would be, as Isaiah would call him, a suffering servant. But through his suffering, he would be exalted. And they were trying to get to the exaltation without going through the suffering. So notice how Peter responds to this. Jesus has just said, this is what's going to happen, right? This is where I'm going, the gospel. Uh, I'm going to the cross. 
But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Literally in the Greek, what it says is, God's mercy is yours. It's not going to happen. In other words, Jesus, look, it's your life. God's favor is all over you. His mercy is yours. God's not going to let you suffer such an ignominious event. He's not going to allow you to experience such a horrible thing. You're not going to be crucified. You're going to be on the throne. God's mercy is yours. May it never be. But look, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Now, notice this. Matthew this, is telling this great story right under the inspiration of the Spirit. In the previous passage, who was the inspiration for Peter getting it right? God. So Peter, divinely inspired, says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now here in, the, you, you turn the corner, the dissertation is defended, you've passed, and what happens? He takes this knowledge, and what happens? Who's his inspiration here? He goes from being divinely inspired to being demonically inspired. Satan, get behind me. Now, here's the thing. If we need proof that orthodoxy is not enough to save us, who is the most orthodox being there is in existence? Uh, Satan is. He knows who Jesus is. That's the reason why he's trying to stop him from going to the cross. He knows the plan of God, and he's trying to derail it. And in the garden, he came straight at Jesus, but now he's coming through one of Jesus' friends, right? He says, surely not. God's mercy is yours. You don't have to go there. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are a scandalon to me. That, that word literally, a hindrance, that kind of doesn't do it justice because the word literally is a stumbling block. Peter, the rock, is now a stumbling block. Peter, the one who's supposed to be a foundation stone, is now one that is trying to trip up the very building plans that, that God had set in motion. He had gone from being divinely inspired to being demonically inspired. And Jesus says to him, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter, you're thinking too low. You're thinking too small. You, you don't understand that there is no kingdom apart from the cross. You know, I found, I, I, before I started teaching seminary, I've done a lot of other things, but I was a high school history teacher. I've, I've taught in a lot of different settings. And the one thing that I've come to understand is the student who thinks they know it all is the most dangerous to themselves and to others. When you think you got it figured out, Christ, the Son of the living God. Be careful. Be humble. I'm not saying that's not, that is true. That's true truth. But if you allow that truth, if you allow the truth of the gospel to cause you to puff up on the inside and to exalt yourself, then you are 
misunderstanding the very message you proclaim. And so that's what's happening here with Peter. He, he, he's become puffed up in his knowledge. The fact is, is knowing all the orthodox theological answers doesn't necessarily translate into spiritual humility. If you trace all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in, in the gospel according to Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first sermon, how does the sermon begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. In other words, poverty. Uh, come, come to God saying, I have nothing to offer. And, and it's through that where you begin to understand what the kingdom is all about. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great, great man of God preacher. He, he warns us of the dangers of such so-called orthodoxy, thinking we know all the answers. I'm going to read a quote It's at length, but, but stay plugged in. And then the, the tail end of the quote is actually going to be directed towards those of you who are involved in the seminary and, and towards myself, because we, we sometimes need a special warning. But, but listen here to Lloyd-Jones. He says, There's a terrible danger of our putting the doctrines, true doctrines about the person of Jesus into the place of the person. And that's absolutely fatal. It's a very similar snare which traps evangelical people and orthodox people. You can be orthodox, he says, but dead. Why? Because you're stopping at the doctrines. You're stopping at the definitions. And you're failing to realize that the whole purpose of the doctrine is not to be an end to itself, but to lead us to a knowledge of the person and an understanding of the person and fellowship with the person. It's a terrible thing, he says, to substitute doctrines for the living realization of the person of Jesus. And he goes on and he talks to people in ministry and he says this, this also applies to preaching. Of course, a preaching which is non-doctrinal is quite useless. Yes, but let us remember that there's a difference between preaching about doctrines and preaching doctrinally. By that I mean that you can preach doctrines in a purely intellectual and mechanical manner. You can start with your doctrine, you can expound it, and you can end with it. And you've preached about the doctrine, but that's not the business of preaching. And he goes on and says, there's a powerful adversary, the devil, who's ever trying to ruin everything that God does and to rule over us. So we have to be careful not to spend our time merely with definitions and statements and stop there and fail to arrive at a knowledge of the person of Jesus. So we have to be careful that it's not just what we know. We can look at our lives, as you're about to see in the second part uh, of, of this text, we can look at our lives and see how what we know really is shaping us, and then we'll know if that knowledge is actually knowledge that's from God. So Peter had been demonically inspired and his thoughts were the thoughts of man Isaiah talks about it uh, just after his suffering service servant passage in Isaiah 55 he says for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts it's interesting that that passage comes after um, Isaiah is prophesying about the one who would suffer and die, that the sins of the world would be placed upon the Messiah. Because that's not what Israel expected. 
That's not what Peter expected, and, and oftentimes it's not what we expect. So in the second part, this will be much shorter, but I'm going to make application here. We begin with the cross of Jesus, but it flows into the cross of the disciples. Matthew chapter 16 goes on. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's kingdom talk. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So here in this second part of the passage, we see that Jesus has already revealed the true nature of his messiahship. He is a suffering servant. But now we're going to see who his disciples are. And and the, the identity of a true disciple is one who is willing to suffer with him. To take up his own cross. Jesus begins, if anybody's going to come after me, he's got to deny himself and take up his cross and follow. So let him deny himself. That's, that's self-renunciation. In humility, what Jesus is saying, we have to rid ourselves of our own agenda. Peter had his own agenda. And oftentimes we do too. Uh, the life of a disciple is characterized by one who renounces our own agenda. And lays hold of Christ's agenda, even if it leads us somewhere we don't want to go. And the next part there, take up his cross. While self-renunciation is often private, it's often obedience in the mundane things of life, taking up your cross was a very public thing. you got to keep in mind, when Jesus said this, he had not yet been to the cross. So the disciples are looking around at the Roman Empire. They're seeing people who are being crucified. They're thieves. They're liars. They're murderers. They're bad people. We're not that kind of people. Jesus, you're not that kind of person. Surely there's no cross. But Jesus says, you're going to have to take up your cross. It's a very public and humiliating death in front of people. He had already used this phrase for them once in Matthew chapter 10. I guess they had not yet gotten it. He said, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, crucifixion is a a shocking metaphor when it comes to discipleship. A disciple needs to deny himself, die to self-will, and take up his cross, embrace God's will no matter the cost, and follow Jesus. And that's how he says, he says, follow me. That's a a willful direction. You're, You're deciding to follow after him. One guy, uh, biblical scholar Scott McKnight, says that um, those who are followers of Jesus actually follow Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus. Now that sounds silly, but look at the church today. And how many people say they're following Jesus who are not following Jesus? Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's taking you somewhere. And it may not be where you want to go, but it's where you need to go so that you can grow in your dependence and your worship of Him. Francis Chan asked this question. He says, how many of us would really leave our families, our jobs, our education, our friends, our connections, our familiar surroundings, and our homes if Jesus asked us to? Just imagine if He showed up and said, follow me. No explanation, no directions. You could could be led straight up a hill to be crucified. 
Or maybe he would lead you to another country. Or maybe uh, you would never see your family again. Or perhaps he would have you just stay put. But he would ask you to spend all of your time serving others who will never love you back and never show gratitude for what you gave up. Consider this carefully, Chan says. Have you ever followed Jesus? Or was your decision to follow Christ something flippant based solely on feelings and emotion and made without counting the cost? Have you followed Jesus? Finally, I want you to see the invitation to truly follow Jesus is one that involves both word and deed, both belief and practice. He says, whoever's going to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a, a, yet another one of those kingdom paradox statements. In order to find your life, you need to lose your life. In order to save your life, you need to give it up. For what will it profit if you, if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? So we have to ask ourselves then, what's at stake in our identity? What's at stake in our identity? Our very souls are judgment is coming, Jesus says. He lays that out. He says, I'm going to come and everyone will be judged. And, and please understand, this is not a judgment of your works in the sense of have you earned God's favor. This is a judgment of what have you done with Jesus? With who he is? Has that changed the way that you live? Is it changed you so much that now you've taken up your cross and you're following after him wherever he leads, whatever it costs? You have everything to lose if you don't gain Jesus in this life. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer penned a, a book that we now call The Cost of Discipleship. Originally the, the title was just Discipleship. He was under persecution by the Nazi regime in World War II. And actually his discipleship, his, his following Jesus did cost him his life. He, he was martyred. He wrote this about discipleship. He said, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. Ultimately, it's grace without Jesus Christ. He says, cheap, uh, cheap grace is when you embrace the message that you've sinned, but now everything's forgiven so you can live the way you want to live. That's cheap grace. He says, the main defect of such a proclamation or such a gospel is that it contains no demand for discipleship. And in contrast to this, he says, is costly grace. Now listen to this. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes to us as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and to the contrite heart. It's costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and to follow him. And it's grace because, and then he quotes Matthew 11. Listen to these words. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 11, beginning in verse 25. And this is where we're going to close. He says, costly grace says this to us. Matthew chapter 11, I'll begin in verse 25. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and you've revealed them to little children. I would add little children who could answer which one of these is not like the other. Yes, Father, for so it was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then look at this. This is the picture 
of discipleship, and this is the picture of the costly grace that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about when Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Did you notice there the type of people the Father has revealed the secrets of the kingdom to? It's little children. And did you notice what Jesus said the cross-shaped life looked like? It's not a burden that you carry on your own. It's a burden that he carries for you. There are people in here this morning who are broken. People in here this morning who are burdened. If you try to rescue yourself, you will fail miserably time and time again. But Jesus says, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My mom gave this to me several years back because I believe that this is one of the most beautiful metaphors of discipleship. What it means to be a disciple means that you're yoking up with Jesus. See, I don't have disciples. I don't make disciples of George. I make disciples of Jesus. All I do is help people to yoke up with Jesus. And if you'll notice that this yoke has two neck braces, usually what will happen is there's a a training yoke where one of the sides of the yoke is much bigger than the other. And that's where the mature and the strong ox will be yoked up. And then the other side will be a little bit smaller where the immature, the new ox will be yoked beside. The mature ox will carry the whole load. The mature ox knows what it's doing. It goes in the right way. It, it plows out the path. The immature ox literally just yokes up to him and learns the way, learns the burden. You know, Jesus lived a cross-shaped life. And we are too as well. But what does it look like for you to take up your cross and follow Jesus? It looks like this. Because his cross looked like that. Jesus carried the burden for each and every one of us. And he bids us to come and die. He bids us to yoke up with him. And to allow him to carry the weight for us. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Peter had gotten it right, but then he got it awfully wrong. And we're guilty so oftentimes of having all the right answers and saying all the right things when the fact of the matter is we've broken the yoke and we're going off in our own direction. This morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just come to Jesus and to confess your need of him And I pray this morning that if there's anybody in this place that you're not yoked up to him, if if you've called yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're not following, that you'll come to the front and you'll let some of our elders pray with you about that. But then there's some of you who are here this morning that are followers of Jesus and you've got all the orthodox answers and you've got that right. But the fact of the matter is, uh, you've desired a crossless kingdom. We all have at times. This morning, let's repent of that. And let's remember that our very entrance into the kingdom of God cost God his son. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we come to you this morning in the name of our Messiah, the one that you sent, your son. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would deal with hearts through the power of your spirit and that you would help each one of us, Lord God, to consider, Lord, first of all, that Jesus is not like the others. There is no competitor to him. But then I also pray that you would help us as we deal with who we are in light of who Jesus is. And Father, I pray that this church would be a church that is filled with disciples who are yoked up to you, willing to deny ourselves, Lord God, to take up our cross and to follow you, even into great suffering, if it makes the name of Jesus great. We pray it in his name. Amen.